You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, It must suck to be Fox News right now. Their guy lost the election and they can't pretend he didn't and they're losing viewers by the hundreds of thousands to the right-wing lunatics at Newsmax where they are willing to pretend Trump won the election. So time to change the subject, which means Fox News is trotting out that old chestnut, that old warhorse, that old reliable culture war staple, the war on Christmas. They put up a Christmas tree outside Fox News And it's not like those left-wing Christmas trees you've seen in anarchist jurisdictions like Seattle with their twinkling white lights. Oh, no. Take it away, Steve Ducey. As we look at the all-American Christmas tree at Fox Square, welcome to the big studio here in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. When do you put your tree up? We put it up, well, this year we're somewhat nomadic. Are we New Yorkers? Are we Texans? So it's not going up on any kind of timely basis this year, but it's usually right about now, right, right after that's Thanksgiving. Right. I'm we, doing mine today. We got a tree outside of the building, so that's kind of everybody's tree. That's Thank right. you, Steve. Thank it you. is. That's the America tree. It's red, white, and blue. Ah, yes, the all-American Christmas tree, the traditional all-American symbol of that all-American-iest of holidays, Christmas. As all-American Americans know, the all-American Christmas tree was popularized by Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha with an assist from Charles Dickens after Albert's marriage to his cousin Victoria, granddaughter of George III, who became queen of the United Kingdom in Ireland after the death of her uncle William IV and later became empress of India. And as all-American Americans know, we celebrate all-American Christmas on the 25th of December because Latin-speaking church leaders meeting in Rome in 366 AD picked that date, December 25th, as the day we would celebrate the birth of our all-American savior, Jesus Christ, a Middle Eastern Jew born three and a half centuries earlier in what is now Palestine, and church leaders picked December 25th to co-opt an already existing pagan Roman holiday solstice, which Romans celebrated by decorating their homes with evergreen trees in the all-American style. Since Americans are notoriously bad at geography and sarcasm, I want to clarify that England, India, the Duchy of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, Rome, Palestine, not in America. And since Americans are notoriously bad at history, the United States of America didn't exist in 366 AD. I have never understood why right-wingers wanted to make Christmas a front in the culture war or how they could get away with it. Christmas, a holiday so gay, our Puritan ancestors banned it. Christmas, a holiday so gay, the expression camp as Christmas is used as a homophobic insult in England. We limp-wristed liberals, we love Christmas. It's colorful and sparkly and gay, and, and you get presents for free, and isn't that what socialism is all about? You know, I gotta say, I used to think it was exhausting to have this argument year after year after year, but this year, after what we've been through over the last four years, as tiresome as this war on Christmas shit is, as blasphemous as it is for Fox News to try and turn Christmas Day into July 4th, Independence Day Part 2, somehow this year, watching the talking heads on Fox News haul out their Christmas desecrations, it felt like a return to normalcy. Or a return to what felt abnormal before Trump came along, but now feels as cozy and familiar as Nat King Cole's Christmas album. But for the record and for the millionth time, liberals love Christmas. There's no war on Christmas, just like there's no Santa and there's no Rudolph and there's no Prince Albert. Not anymore. 
There's also no such thing as Fox Square. Did you catch that in that clip from Fox News where they talked about Fox News headquarters and Fox Square? There's no such thing, no such place in Manhattan. Look it up on Google Maps. No Fox Square. There is a small, nameless, windswept plaza outside Fox News in Manhattan, a dingy little scrap of pavement that somehow isn't the site of daily protests against the misinformation and racist bullshit pushed out by Fox News every day. And I have never understood why it isn't the site of daily protests. And I want to be perfectly clear about this. I support protests. I am against vandalism, against looting. And I don't think protesters should burn down buildings. It doesn't help the cause. It doesn't help any cause. But if people are going to burn down buildings, a random target seems like an odd choice when Fox News headquarters is sitting right there in Fox Square. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Amy Chan from Breakup Bootcamp is on the show to talk about her scientific and spiritual approach to breakups. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a submissive straight cis male, and I've got a pandemic success story for you. I was dating a dominant woman before the current unpleasantness. I didn't see her from March until August. Then we had a series of social distancing dates on my front porch when the weather was good. These included coffee, dinner, lots of good conversation, and on the last one, play with my remote-controlled vibrating butt plug. She operated it from an app on her phone and obviously had a good time watching me react. Before she left, she asked if I'd be open to having a play session like this when she didn't come over. I had some doubt about how much I'd enjoy this without her present. But it was clear she would have a good time, and I love to please women, so I agreed. Well, surprise, surprise, I had a great time. I really felt her presence as the vibe rumbled deep in my ass. We texted a lot. I gave her a play-by-play of how it felt. She had me send her pics. She sent me one of herself, semi-nude and reclining. Very nice. She had me play with myself, but told me not to come. I looked at the pics she'd sent me. I imagined being with her, me naked and her nearly so. Of course, I wouldn't be allowed to touch it without her explicit instruction. And she was messing with my ass. It wasn't that different. Eventually, she told me to come for her, and I did. It was great. My hand, but her command. She had me send her more pics as things resolved. Then she sent one more vibration pattern into my ass and told me to keep the plug in until it was done. And then she was gone. Until the next adventure. I smiled the rest of the day. Thank you for calling in and sharing your success story. We like to start each week's show with somebody's sex success story before we get to everybody's sex and relationship problems and drama and strife. I particularly liked this one. I fully expect remote control sex toys will be the hit gift of this COVID-impacted holiday season. Thank you again for calling in and sharing. And now on to the problems, the drama, and the strife. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old pan woman from the upper Midwest. I've been married for just over one year, and my husband is aware that I am pan. Over the past several months, I have been contemplating asking him if he would be willing to have a conversation about opening up our marriage. I've been doing a lot of soul searching lately, and I'm discovering that a lot of my mental health issues stem from me feeling inauthentic and like a fraud. As of late, these feelings have been eating me alive, and I have been anxiety-ridden and feeling physically ill. One of the main reasons I want to open up our marriage is so that I can seek female-identifying sexual and possibly even emotional connections. 
My husband does a good job satisfying me emotionally and sexually, but I feel incomplete being unable to express and act on my attraction to other female identifying people. I'm not 100% sure what the exact details of opening up our relationship would look like, but I do know that I would be okay with my husband also seeking other sexual and emotional connections, as long as we both agree that our marriage is our, is our primary relationship. I am nervous about broaching this topic with my husband, however, because I am completely unsure of how he will react. He comes from a very Irish Catholic family, but as an adult is not extremely devout. I still want to have children with and grow old with my husband, but I'm afraid that he will view this as the ultimate betrayal and that he isn't enough, which definitely is not the case. What I'm asking is if you have any advice on how to broach this topic with him and what I could potentially expect from this conversation. Please don't get married. Anybody out there listening, please don't get married before you're 25 and your brain is fully formed. 24 years old. You've been married for a year. That means you married a 22 or 23 caller. And I just think that that's a bad idea. And obviously in your case, it was. You didn't know what you wanted. You didn't know what you needed in your life when you were 23 years old or 22 years old or 21 years old and you accepted your then boyfriend, now husband's proposal. And now you have some clarity. Your pan, he's always known your pan. You've always been out to him. That's good. But now you know that, I'm sorry, he isn't enough for you. You say that you don't want him to think he's not enough for you, but then you say if you're not able to have relationships with female persons, that you're going to feel incomplete and that for your own mental health, you're going to need to have relationships, not just sexual, also emotional relationships, emotional connections with others. Okay, then by definition, he's not enough for you. He doesn't meet all of your needs. I don't think any one person can be everything to any other one person. I think we would be a lot more content in our relationships generally, even if our relationships are sexually exclusive and emotionally exclusive, if we just looked at each other and said, yeah, you're not enough for me and I'm not enough for you. And one person can never be enough for another person. I hope I come close. And even if we're sexually exclusive, I hope you have other relationships that provide you with some of the other things that you may need emotionally, meet some of your other needs that I can't meet. And me allowing you to get those needs met elsewhere may be one way that I get closer to being enough for you, even if it's not a sexually open relationship. You didn't have that conversation before you married though because you didn't know at 22 or 23 what you needed. Now you know and you're going to have to reverse engineer an agreement with your husband about your commitment. You made a monogamous commitment. It was the wrong thing to do. It was wrong for you. I, I, I'm not blaming you. You know, a lot of us are hustled along into making monogamous commitments because we're told good people are monogamous and monogamous people are good and we want to think of ourselves as good. And being in love means being monogamous and being monogamous means we're in love. And it, the end result is a lot of people don't realize that monogamy wasn't for them until after they've made that monogamous commitment. And as we frequently discuss on this show, almost all people in happy, open, poly relationships – those relationships, perhaps outside of San Francisco and Seattle and Portland, almost invariably started as closed monogamous relationships. So at some point, someone raised the issue and they had a difficult conversation. And there's no way to have this conversation without difficulty. Your husband is likely to have, at least at the outset, a negative reaction. 
one of the perks of marriage is that it's hard to walk away from someone that you've committed to publicly in that way and legally lashed yourself to. So you can raise the subject and even if he has a negative reaction, you have some assurance that he's going to think about it or have to think about it long and hard before he does anything drastic like moving out or calling in the divorce lawyers. So even if he has a negative reaction at first, that doesn't mean that you, you're not going to keep talking. It doesn't mean he's not going to think about it. He's in a position because you two are married where he's not going to have any choice but to think about it long and hard before he takes action. And who knows? Sometimes people say, have you ever thought about having an open relationship, which for fuck's sake is a conversation that everyone should have before they get married, not after they get married, whether they're interested in openness or not, at least to find out if your partner was thinking about it which for fuck's sake is a conversation that everybody should have, monogamous or not, before they get married just to make sure if what you want is monogamy, that monogamy is also what your partner wants, a person you're about to marry, that they're on the same page. So it should be discussed. Well, you're going to discuss it now. I would recommend you get opening up by Frequent Savage Lovecast guest and host of the Sex Out Loud podcast, Tristan Taramino. It's a, it's a terrific book about opening up a relationship that will help you both to have this conversation, a conversation that might be difficult. And I would urge you, please God, to have this conversation sooner rather than later and to have this conversation, for fuck's sake, before you have kids. Don't wait until after you have kids to have this conversation. Hi, Dan. So I've been with my guy for like two years and he has no kinks. None. And I'm not really sure if it's really true that he doesn't have any or if he's just not being honest. And so I'm a little bit hesitant to really share what I like with him because he just doesn't. He even says that when he gets on Pornhub or whatever, he just scrolls through till he finds something. He doesn't even search anything. Like, is that normal that someone just doesn't have any kinks? Just he's totally vanilla. He's totally open with anything that I do. But is he? Is it normal for someone to have no kinks? Well, assuming that your boyfriend isn't lying, assuming that he's 100% vanilla but pretty open to anything, may not be normal. But it is his normal. Is he hiding something? Is he lying to you? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I don't know what's going on between his ears when he masturbates. But if you've been with him for two years and you've stumbled over no evidence that there's some secret second sexual life that he's living and that he's hiding from you or something that he's deeply ashamed of, take him at his word. He's pretty vanilla but very open-minded and maybe he's – the second G, really strongly second G in GGG. Maybe he's very giving. Maybe he's really into doing whatever it is that turns his partner on and the giving of pleasure, going there, doing the things that you want to do, being GGG himself. Maybe that's kind of his kink. Maybe you should understand that as his thing. You may have some kinks of your own that are more specific, that are things that leap to mind when someone uses the word kink, but maybe that's his thing. Maybe that's what he grooves on. Absent some, you know, sexual dysfunction, sexual neglect, some shameful or furtive behavior, yeah, take him at his word. What you've got right now is a hot vanilla boyfriend 
who's game for anything, up for anything, into doing whatever it is that you want to do. As problems go, that's a pretty good problem to have. Hey, Dan. I'm calling with a polyamory question. I am not polyamorous myself, but I have started dating a married man, and he's in an ethically open relationship with his wife, who I have reached out to to make sure that everything checks out, and it does, and things have been going really well. As relationships go, I've, of course, started to notice things that have annoyed me, and one of them includes the fact that he likes to tell me how much he wants to fuck other women that he sees, totally not a jealous person, totally fine with his high sex drive, but also do I have to hear about it? I've made a couple comments when he's commented about my friends, but I think it breeds defensiveness and it breeds um, a mistrusting relationship, which I don't want. Maybe I'm just sex shaming him. I don't know. Um, The other part of it is that I believe he might just be a little bit dense when it comes to realizing the effects that his actions and his words have on other people. And I've seen this happen in his own relationship with his wife. I think that sometimes maybe he has a hard time putting himself in other people's shoes, which is a really difficult thing to communicate to somebody without it turning into an accusatory conversation. I don't want to throw him under the bus. I want to approach this with a level-headed um, demeanor. And I just guess I'm looking for some advice from anybody who knows how to approach this situation, knowing full well that I'm not his number one, knowing full well that I'm not here to try to change who he is. I'm just enjoying his company. And I don't know, but I also want to look out for my own needs, my own wants and um, things that make me uncomfortable without him assuming it's coming from a place of jealousy. This isn't polyamory, what he's doing. It's ass. He sounds incredibly inconsiderate and you are being so considerate about how to confront this asshole about how inconsiderate of your feelings he's being. Even if you're not jealous, even if you understand that he has a wife and other sexual partners and you're not his number one, it's not unreasonable for you when you're with him to want to feel like you're the one he's with right this minute even if you're not the only one. And him talking to you about your friends that he wants to fuck and other women he's about to fuck, you're not his buddy at the bar hearing about his conquests and you're not interested in playing that role in his life and you're not interested in setting him up with your friends. I'm sorry. You need to just be blunt with him. And maybe he's on the spectrum and maybe he doesn't get it and maybe he has very poor social skills. But you just need to be straight with him. Look, I don't want to hear about this. Don't tell me about all my friends you want to fuck when we're together. When we're together, I want to feel like at least for this minute you're thinking about fucking me. And if you can't focus on fucking me when we're together, when we're getting together to fuck, then I don't want to fuck you anymore. Knock it the fuck off. Even if it didn't bother you to occasionally hear about other, even if it turned you on to hear about the other women that he's sleeping with, he would need to ask you that first. He would need to figure that out over time. That would be a very particular kink. And he shouldn't just assume that any one of his sex partners wants to hear about all of his other sex partners. Again, that's not a poly thing. That's an asshole thing. The poly guy you're seeing is not going to call him an asshole, but he is acting like an asshole. And you need to confront him 
not about his polyamory, not about the way he practices polyamory, but about his assholery. And you need to tell him to knock it off, that you don't like it. And if he can't knock it off, stop seeing him. Because what he's telling you in that moment is he doesn't care about how you feel. He would rather run his mouth about all the pussy he wants to get or all the pussy he's getting than be considerate of the feelings of the woman who is sitting in front of him right now, being considerate of your feelings. So, yeah, he doesn't get to claim poly or accuse you of not getting it or being polyphobic or anything else. You want the person who's putting his dick inside you to show minimum consideration for your feelings. Now, maybe he's dense and doesn't get it, doesn't understand that this is hurting your feelings, that you don't enjoy hearing about this. Well, once you have told him, he has no excuse. And don't wait another minute to tell him to knock this shit, knock this assholery the fuck off already. Hey, Dan. I have a relationship terminology question and figured if anyone would know the answer to it, it would be you. So over the years as a Lovecast listener, I've heard you use terms like monogamish, open relationships, uh, DADT, but none of those ever seem to really fit my particular relationship. I'm a bi woman, my husband is a straight man, and we love casually dating and hooking up with female thirds together. We only play together and we would consider it cheating and a betrayal if either of us had a solo experience with someone outside of our relationship. We love threesomes and we love pursuing women together, but like I always say, we are a team. So I'm just curious, is there a term for couples who open their relationship but are also monogamous in the sense that they only play together as a package deal? I'm sure we're not the only ones out there. You say you want a label and you already have one and you used it at the end of your call. You two are a package deal. That's how couples that are open but only play together are often described. I don't think that there's a pride flag for package deals. I don't think there needs to be a pride flag for package deals, but there are already terms for you. The long and involved one is we are in an open relationship, but we only play together. And the shorter term that most people who are in open relationships understand that would describe your situation are those two words that you used at the end of your call. You two are a package deal. Now, maybe you deserve a pride flag of your very own and maybe somebody out there in the package deal community can get on that. But probably by the end of the show, some enterprising Savage Lovecast listener will have designed the flag for the package deal community that the package deal community wants and deserves and has been waiting for. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old cisgender by slash pansexual female located in L.A. And this one really goes out for all the single people dating in big cities. And it's just so hard to grow that real connection, deep intimacy, where um, people sometimes just kind of chasing the high, the next shiny thing. And unfortunately, myself is guilty of this at times as well. But at this point, I'm just so tired of these fast food-like situationships. So my question is, as someone who's looking for long-term, intimate, committed partnerships and prefers being open sexually, how do I find that niche people who are on the same page where he or she also wants that connection companionship, but is also open to being open and not trying to get serious right away? It seems like there's plenty of people like that, couples like that, exploring from listening to your show, 
but I don't know why I keep attracting and get attracted to people who either just want to fuck around forever or who wants to be committed right away. Do I just have to ask and be clear of what I want, uh, what I'm looking for right off the bat? But what if that level of directness really kills the magic, the spontaneity I really value in the early stage of the relationships? Are there any qualities I can look for without asking the question of what are you looking for so directly? Or uh, am I just asking too much? Or am I, am I overthinking it? So you want intimacy. You want commitment. You also want openness. And you live in a place, you live in a big city where you get the impression that a lot of people out there are just chasing that high. And I think the high you're referring to is new relationship energy high, NRE high. And once that high wears off, the people that you've been in bed with or the people that you've chased after yourself have wandered away in search of somebody else who can provide them with that high again. And it's really important here that you cop to being guilty of this too, that you've been chasing the NRE high. All right. Now you're ready. It seems to me that now that you've chased that high often enough to know that it wears off and while it's not hard to find somebody else who can provide you with that high, there's a different high you now want to experience and that's the long-term committed yet open relationship high. And you haven't been able to nail that down yet because it's not just that everybody out there that you've dated has been chasing the NRE high. You've also been chasing the NRE high. And I think it's very likely that you are attracting people who are only after what you're after, that you are being pretty clear or you have been in the past about what you wanted and what you wanted was something temporary. What you wanted was that high. Well, now you want something more and I think you should put that out there. I think you should ask and be clear about what you want. But when, when to be open about exactly what it is you want, well, it's the sort of thing where even if the person that you're going to tell all the things that you want to wants roughly the same things, it can be weird or off-putting for somebody just to start blurting all that shit out on the first date. So put a little bit of it perhaps on your profiles. But then when you're on your date, not that anybody should be dating right now, but in the future when you are on your face-to-face -face dates, once we are all vaccinated and those things are possible again – yeah, not before the soup comes, not before the entree comes, maybe not even before the drink comes, maybe not even over the first few dates or the first few weeks. There comes a point in a relationship when people with, I think, a high degree of emotional intelligence realize that you like each other well enough to start really seriously vetting each other to see if there's long-term potential, if long-term is what both of you want. And at that point, you initiate conversations about expectations, conversations about openness versus monogamy, conversations about kinks, conversations about kids, conversations about religion or where you want to live in the country, what you want to do or where you want to go in life. And it's often the case when you get to that point where you have those conversations, you're not magically – on the same page on every last item on your list and their list. They don't necessarily align. You haven't ticked all the same boxes. And that's where the serious negotiations start. That's where you begin to think about paying the price of admission. You know, if the person that you're really into, you've been seeing them for a month or two and you're really into them and what you always wanted was a certain degree of openness and what they want at least now is monogamy, are you willing to be monogamous to be with this person? At that point, you can decide whether you want to continue in this relationship. It may be at that point that person says they don't want kids and never want kids and you really want kids. And then 
you need to say, well, thank you for the last couple of months. It was really fun. But on this, there is no compromise. There's no half a loaf. There's no half a kid. Just like there's no half a loaf when it comes to monogamy. You're monogamous or you're not. And initiating relationships, getting to know people before you know if you're on the same page on all of those major and important issues may mean churning through a few more relationships before you hit, well, not a jackpot. You're not going to line up all the cherries, but come really close where the things that this person wants that you don't want or the things that you want that they don't want, you're both, because you really are that into each other, willing to compromise on those things, perhaps even willing to compromise on things that you didn't think before you met this person you would be willing to compromise on. You know, you hear often from people who are young and still dating in a big city like LA or New York or San Francisco or Chicago that it's really hard to make it happen here. And to a man and to a woman, everyone who says that, it hasn't happened for them yet. And then it happens for them and then they stop making that argument that it's impossible to find love or anyone who's interested in a serious commitment in Los Angeles. It has so far been impossible or hard for you to find someone interested in a serious commitment in Los Angeles, at least in part because you were not interested really in having a serious commitment. Not yet. You are now. So put yourself out there. Put that out there when you reach that vetting stage. And I promise you, Three or four more NRE cycles later, you may find the new relationship energy person that you want to keep in your life long enough for it to become just relationship energy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old straight cisgender man, and I wanted to ask you a question about masturbating. Technology's come a long way. Lately, my habit has been that I go to Instagram or Facebook and look for a photo of an attractive female friend and I uh, use Photoshop to make it look like she's naked. I know that that's extremely creepy and uh, I don't feel great with myself, but what I really want to make sure is that I'm not violating anybody's consent by doing this. I, uh, it's on my computer for a few seconds and I edit it and then I delete it. I'm really not trying to cause harm with this. It feels like a bit of a gray area. So please let me know what you think. What do I think? I think it's kind of creepy. You think it's kind of creepy. It's not something that you would want your female friends to know that you're doing. But in the same way, prior to Photoshop existing, you wouldn't have wanted your female friends to know that you were conjuring up mental images of them while you masturbated. You were thinking about them while you masturbated. And there was a pretty easy and effective way to make sure that your female friends didn't know that you were thinking about them when you masturbated. And that was not telling them that you were thinking about them while you masturbated, not seeking their consent to think about them while you masturbate, because that just forces them to think about you thinking about them while you are masturbating. And that is not a thought that anybody needs to be burdened with or really wants to have to think about. Yeah, there's Obviously, if you're a relatively attractive person and attractiveness is subjective, so just about everybody out there has probably at some point in their life, all unbeknownst to them, been the subject of somebody else's masturbatory fantasies. And that's really what we're talking about here. You're having a little masturbatory fantasy with a technological assist. And rather than just conjuring up a mental image of your friend naked, you're yanking a photo of them that they have posted publicly off the internet, editing it so you can – Better imagine them naked, having a wank, and then deleting it 
It would be a real problem if you were saving these on an unsecure file somewhere that somebody else might one day stumble across. It would be a real problem if you were posting these publicly on the internet in some horrifying forum on Reddit or 4chan or 8chan or wherever the fuck, you're not doing anything like that. You're creating these images, you're having your wank, and you are very responsibly deleting these images. You are erasing this work. And so the people that you're masturbating about, as uncomfortable as it might make them to know that you were doing this, aren't in any way being harmed. And so ethically, I don't think that there's a problem here. This is only creepy insofar as I've had to contemplate it and now all my listeners have had to contemplate it, right? If we didn't have to contemplate it and this was just something that you did in private for your own enjoyment and never told anybody about and didn't post anything publicly about, there would be no creep. Nobody would be feeling creepy. So keep your mouth shut. Enjoy what you enjoy. Do what you're doing. Continue to delete what you are deleting. And uh, yeah. Don't tell the people that you're masturbating about, that you are thinking about when you masturbate, that you are thinking about them when you masturbate. Don't seek their consent. You do not have to th- seek anyone's consent to enjoy your private thoughts. Just keep them private. Hi, Dan. I am a 36 female straight living in the Northeast. I'm calling because of a situation that recently came up with uh, a guy I met two months ago. So he is 39, divorced about three years ago. I am 36, also uh, divorced about three years ago. And so I had just actually moved back to my home state right in the middle of the pandemic, but thankful to be home. And we just had a great connection the first three to four weeks. A little bit rare for somebody I, one, met online and also just rare to have that level of intensity at 36, in my opinion. So met within the first week, we're spending time up till two, three in the morning, and just having a great time getting to know each other. All that came to a halt when we tried to have sex three to four weeks in. And that was a result of him having performance anxiety and being really embarrassed about what happened. And also just kind of in his head about what this actually means. So it turns out it's not the first time it's happened for him. He had previously had it happened to him once, however, because it was just a year after his divorce, he figured it was a matter of just potentially not being over his divorce or so emotionally involved. However, when he casually dates and has sex, he's totally able to perform. It's just when he is getting to know somebody and likes them that that anxiety comes up. So couldn't perform, hasn't had sex. His call out there was, look, I clearly am fucked up. I need to work on myself. I will be single for the rest of my life if I can't get this shit fixed out. And I don't think I'm going to be a good partner to you because I'm going to be in my head. My reaction when this happens is get the fuck out and leave. And so because that is where my head is at, I don't think I can be there for you. And we ended things. That lasted for about a week slowly started texting again and we started to see each other again just once a week. So definitely scaled back. So I'm now at a point where it's been two months. I really like him, would love to continue exploring, but I also know there's a huge difference in how he's approaching it now versus how he did at the beginning. He measures his communication. Obviously uh, we meet up, um, but I feel like I'm the one initiating and that doesn't feel good. And so I'm at the point where I'm wondering if I perhaps am trying to push forward 
something with someone who is telling me he's emotionally unavailable? And what's the fine balance between enjoying it for what it is now and being casual about it versus kind of reading what he's telling me that he's emotionally unavailable? The other thing is I, I asked him if he wanted to casually date and just kind of see other people at the same time. That's not the case. He has no interest in seeing other people. And if that's my interest, he wants out. He likes me, would like to date, but is also saying, this is where my head's at. So I need to take it super slow. And the other thing is, I'm curious about wanting to learn more about performance anxiety, where it comes from, how it works, and really, how can someone overcome this? I'm going to tackle your last question first. Performance anxiety. How does it happen? How does it work? Well, I think it's pretty obvious from the name there, performance anxiety. Somebody gets anxious about whether or not they're going to be able to perform. That anxiety pulls them out, takes them out of the moment. They stop thinking about all things or stop taking in all the things that are turning them on, all the visual and sensual stimuli and just start to worry about whether their dick is going to get soft. And that's not an exciting thing to think about. That's not a sexy thought. And ta-da, your dick starts to get soft when you start thinking about unsexy thoughts like, am I about to disappoint this person? There's a really easy and effective way and I've been pushing this for decades and I've heard from so many people that this has worked for to control for this kind of performance anxiety and this kind of performance anxiety. When we say performance anxiety, we're never talking about women. We're always talking about men and their boners because this is always about the dick. This is always about an erection. And how easily spooked some men's erections can be. And that's because men have it in their heads and often women have it in their heads that without a hard dick, there is no sex. That the absence of a hard dick means that the sex failed and that it's over or it can't even start. And if you are with somebody who has performance anxiety about ruining the sex if they can't get hard, what you need to do is say, we're going to have sex whether you get hard or not. We're going to do all of these crazy, fun, different things, maybe PIV, maybe PIA if we're going to do penetrative sex. But if we're not going to do penetrative sex, we're going to do mutual masturbation. We're going to do oral sex. You're going to go down on me and I don't even care if your dick's hard or not. I'm not going to be able to see your dick or not. And taking the pressure off somebody, the pressure to perform, often paradoxically makes it easier for that dick to get hard and easier for that person to perform. If somebody is having – PIV intercourse with you and they begin to lose their erection and you get angry or huffy or they get embarrassed and you buy into that embarrassment, yeah, the dick's not coming back. When you break out that tiny little casket and have a little sad funeral for that dick, it's not going to magically suddenly get hard. But if they start getting soft, if the dude you're with starts getting soft while they're fucking you and instead of everybody getting a sad or getting out of bed or calling it quits – you pivot to something else, something that takes the pressure off, something that adjusts the expectations in that moment and moves the sex from something this person feels that they're failing at, PIV, to something that they may be quite capable of excelling at in that moment, eating your pussy. Suddenly, he's hard again, ready to dive back in, ready to shove his pee back into your V and resume PIVing the shit out of you. So performance anxiety, kind of obvious what it's all about. And it's always seemed to me really obvious how to work with, work around, control for it. And even if the erection doesn't come back, even if you pivot to something else and the dude doesn't get hard, you're still having sex and you're still having fun and you're still succeeding. And the performance is still a good one, even if there wasn't 
PIV. So much of the performance anxiety problem really is grounded in PIV being the definition of sex, the default expectation when a man and a woman go to bed together, the headlining act instead of just one of the players on the playbill. All right. So this guy, he's told you that this is what happens, that when he's feeling serious about someone, that his dick gets shy. And when he doesn't care about someone, he doesn't have this problem. Maybe he has a little bit of a touch of the Madonna whore complex, something you might want to address with him. Maybe he has a harder time sort of losing himself in the moment erotically when it's somebody that he cares about, when the sex feels more emotionally consequential, particularly at the beginning of a relationship. You know, he may feel like you're someone that he could see himself with, but he doesn't know that yet. And he doesn't want his dick to get out over his skis. That's not really a metaphor that works, is it? He doesn't want his dick to make a promise that he can't keep. He worries about what it means if he's feeling this way about you, feeling this close and attracted to you and interested in you and sensing that there might be something long-term with you. And then if the sex on top of that is amazing, does that mean your his dick is sort of boxing him into making a premature commitment in a way? So much could be going on in this guy's head. I can only speculate. But if you like him and you're continuing to hang out with him, even if you're the one doing the initiating right now and that is fine and you have a good feeling about him, give him some time. Give him some space. And then when you start fucking again, have a conversation about the performance anxiety and take the pressure off performance-wise by making the sex not all about his dick. In fact, you know, one good way for a couple that's having an issue with performance anxiety to get past it – is to agree that the next few times you two do have sex, you're not going to have penetrative sex at all. You're going to masturbate together. You're going to roll around together. You're going to get each other off somehow, not using orifices and not requiring then a hard dick to pummel said orifice. And that can help build a guy's confidence up. You know, when he's seen you see his dick work, he knows you know his dick works. And then when you move on, then when you declare the moratorium on PIV or PIA or PIT or PIB over, he's less likely to have those issues because your confidence in his dick because you've seen it work helps buoy his confidence in his own dick because he knows that you know that it works. And he knows that if it doesn't work in that moment, it's not a disaster and it's not a problem and you two can continue to have sex and get each other off in other ways. So if you like him, I think everything he's telling you makes a kind of emotional sense. He just got divorced. That's hugely traumatic. It may scare him a little bit how much he likes you. And that has made the sex perhaps a little bit more fraught with you than it was with women that he wasn't interested in seeing again. And so it's going to take a little longer to build back up, take a little longer for him to feel safe with you and confident with you. And if you follow my easy performance anxiety tips, his confidence, like his dick, will grow. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Amy Chan. She is the founder of Renew Breakup Bootcamp and the editor-in-chief of JustMyType.ca, an online magazine. She has a new book coming out December 1st, Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart. And she has been called the scientific Carrie Bradshaw. Hey, Amy Chan, how are you? 
I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. What is the Breakup Bootcamp? It is an actual retreat that's a place people go? Yeah. So, yeah, Breakup Bootcamp is a physical retreat, and it's held in uh, in an estate in nature in both upstate New York and in California. And I bring in 13 different experts from psychologists, behavior scientists, energy healers, uh, sex educators. I even bring in a dominatrix who teaches on the psychology of power dynamics. And um, people after breakup or separation, sometimes people are even still in the relationship and can't get out. They come and it's a very intimate group of 20 people, 13 facilitators, and uh, they go through this programming from 8 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night that help them process the pain recognize unhelpful patterns and move forward in a healthy way. And and obviously these are on hold right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but when when, when will they be resuming? I I mean, obviously they'll be resuming at some point. Where can people who are interested in attending a breakup bootcamp in the future find them? Or are you doing them virtually now? We're doing them virtually now and they're going really well. So, um, yeah, I will continue even when we're able to gather responsibly. I will have physical retreats, but I'll continue doing the online version because we're finding a lot of people, especially those who are more introverted or more private, are feeling that they can really go a a lot deeper and they're more uh, willing to do an online version than go to a physical retreat. So it's something for everyone. Explain the science of sexual attraction because we often just say, oh, there's something chemical or, or you click, but there's just brains at work there and brains are just machines. What is it that draws one person to another person sexually? What is it about someone that makes it so that, you know, this person you want to put their, your tongue in their ass, this person you want to, you know, <laughs> lick their armpits after they go for a run, but you don't want to do that for the bus driver. You don't want to do that for your anybody else. But, but, but this person, what is that? Right. So human beings like what is familiar. And this is the case, whether it's music or food or even people. And I work with a lot of people who are coming from breakups and really toxic relationships. And and what I found with these people is they have um, what I call a chemistry compass. And so there's different therapists, which will call it something different, such as attraction, deprivation. And this is when we pretty much as adults subconsciously choose people that can wound us in a very similar way to how we were wounded as children. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're way ahead of me. I was wanting to know what attracts two people to each other sexually who might be good together, might be bad together. We don't know yet. That initial phase of attraction when you just want to consume that person, what is that? We call it, you know, a chemical thing before it goes bad, before, you know, you find out if that's toxic. What is it at first when it feels so great and so right? Yeah, so there's three mating drives in the brain, all which can come together to create love. And lust is one of the mating drives, which is uh, really driven by testosterone. And uh, Helen Fisher is a great researcher on this, and her theory is that this is really Mother Nature's way of having us have sex with as many people as we possibly can. And so that's when we have that locking eyes with someone across the room and we feel this pull. And this is when the chemistry compass does come into play because, like I mentioned, we like what is familiar. And so we can feel drawn to someone. And sometimes we don't even know, is that excitement excitement because this could be the one or is this anxiety because it's so strife with moving patterns that you're familiar with? So it can kind of go both ways. And when it goes bad, that's where you come in. 
that's where I come in. <laughs> I come in uh, helping people after they've got many, many different patterns of dating someone who they think might be different from the other person and they blame it on the ex. But when we look at the patterns and the emotional experience, what we find is it's often a very similar emotional experience. And then when we dig deeper, we find that that emotional experience often mirrors an emotional experience they felt when they grew up, uh, mirroring one of the dynamics they had with their primary caregiver. Mm-hmm. So just repeating toxic patterns and you help people recognize the, those patterns and then break them? Yeah. So the very first thing is we help them recognize the patterns, right? Because people come to break up boot camp and they think they're there because of their ex. What they realize by the end of breakup boot camp is that it has nothing to do with the ex and often it's recycled pain. And so we help them identify what are the subconscious belief systems, what are the subconscious patterns that's causing the same patterns to repeat over and over again just with different people. And then we bring in different uh, relationship experts from psychologists to behavioral scientists that help them identify what is that subconscious belief. Sometimes they're not even aware that it exists and then help them um, and give them the tools to start rewiring that belief to something that's more helpful. Do you, be- do you believe in the one? You know, sometimes I think that, well, I think the one is bullshit. I think there's many potential ones out there. And sometimes we use that, the one, you know, as a compliment. But I hear from people all the time who believe in the one and they're harmed by that belief because they're in perfectly wonderful relationships with somebody who gets them and the sex is good and there's a strong emotional connection, but they have this cancerous doubt eating away at them because they've heard about the one and how are you sure that the person you're with is the one? And if you're not sure, if you're, if you have any doubt, isn't that proof that they're not your one? And if they're not your one, that means you're not their one. And I hear people all the time who are trapped in this sort of thinking and, you know, ending relationships all the time that might be good enough. Cause I don't think there's the one, I think there's the close enough. I think there's the you'll do, there's the settling for, I don't think there's the one. Do you? Yeah, Dan, that's such a great question because I do believe that this concept of the one and the one and only soulmate causes a lot of unnecessary suffering. And I do not believe in the one. I believe that you can meet many people who are compatible partners. I also believe that you could meet someone and might feel your soulmate alarm bells be ringing, but that person might be totally not compatible with you when it comes to building a life and a partnership together. And I think a lot of this is also just looking at the the media, the movies, the shows that we're listening to from a very young age, which really emphasizes this intensity of the one. Right. Those shows also emphasize yeah. that only someone you could see yourself building a life with is a legitimate partner. We also, I think, should talk about someone can be the one for now, the one for the summer, the one for the weekend, the one for the next few years, the one until the kids are grown, that if we yeah. th- that it's legitimate to pursue someone even if they're not a person you could see yourself with forever, that forever doesn't have to be the standard by which we assess the legitimacy of attraction, desire, even a, a partnership. Yeah, totally. And I think that like what you're saying is, is so true because the idea of the one is this, this definition of what makes a happy, successful relationship. And I think that since I know for myself, since I've been growing up, 
I've been socialized to believe that that means it's a relationship that you date, you get married, you stay together forever, happily forever after. And if there's any other version of that, then you failed. Right. And I deal with a lot of people who have this plan and they have this plan in their head. And, and when that plan falls apart, they are so down on themselves. And, and when we dig deeper, we're like, wait, you don't even like this person. But you're so distressed and you're suffering so much because you had this idea of that perfect plan. It fell apart. So sometimes they're more attached to the plan than the person themselves. Yes, absolutely. Relationships, as I often say on, on my uh, little podcast here, literally the only thing we declare a failure if everyone involved gets out alive. A relationship can end, and it can be a disaster. A relationship can end uh, and need to end. But sometimes a relationship ends and both people emerge from it better for having known each other and loved each other. And, you know, after six months or a year apart, they're able to circle back and have contact and be friendly and supportive. How is that not a success? Sometimes I think people label relationships that ended failures just because it ended, not because it ended badly, not right. because it ended, you know, in a high conflict way, not because it was toxic, just because it ran its course. And I really mm -hmm. feel like, you know, we people who talk about relationships and write about relationships should emphasize that a relationship can can end and have been a success. And I think if people have mm -hmm. that in their heads, they're likelier to want to stick the dismount and make a relationship that is ending a success by not burning it all to the ground on the way out, by not trying to justify the mm -hmm. end by, you know, throwing bombs or ginning up anger or conflict so that they can go. That sometimes you can part mm -hmm. and it can be melancholic and loving and sad, but it doesn't have to be dramatic and conflict-driven. Yeah, yeah. It measure The ending of a relationship is not the measuring stick of if it was a failure or if it was a success. I agree. Now, I want to I want to talk about you know your specialty, which is getting over the bad breakup at Renew Breakup Bootcamp, and with your new book, I hear from people all the time who've just been dumped, uh, and it's been a long time since I was dumped, so maybe I'm too glib, maybe don't remember what it was like. But I want you to give your opinion on my advice, and then give your advice. Uh, I what I tell people is you know lean on your friends. Eat a lot of ice cream, wallow in your grief, get some exercise, and then set a date past which your friends aren't supposed to indulge you anymore, or listen to you complain anymore, and go fuck some other people. Mm -hmm. So that's my <laughs> advice. And, you know, fuck some other people once the pandemic is over and it's safe to do so, or fuck them virtually for now. What's your scientific opinion? How does your advice for the brokenhearted differ? Okay. So my kind of similar to yours, but I don't say the fuck every fuck people at the end part. But <laughs> what I tell people is um, it, it it is really important to recognize that after a breakup or a divorce, your body is in a state of shock. It is completely normal to feel out of sorts. It's completely normal to crave your ex, even if you know on a cognitive level that that relationship was unhealthy for you. And if you think about it, you have neural pathways that have been wired together for months or, or years or even decades with this person. You're used to getting your fix of dopamine, your oxytocin, you know, even the, the rise in chemicals when you get in a fight and then you have makeup sex. You're used to getting that. And so after a breakup, even though on a cognitive level you, you 
process, okay, this is over, your body's like, what the fuck's going on? Give that to me. Give me that dose of dopamine. Give it to me. And that's when it's going to cause us to have these cravings and this withdrawal. And we might go and justify having makeup sex. Or we will scroll their Instagram feed just to get that hit because we're craving them. And so it's important to recognize that this is totally normal and your body is going to go through a withdrawal stage. And they've done studies on people who have gone through separation and they've looked done fMRI studies on the brain. And they saw that the same part of the brain was lighting up as people who were um, feeding for their next fix, so drug users feeding for the next fix, literally the same part of the brain. So that is just more evidence to show that you are going in withdrawal. Um, and then in terms of, yes, definitely, I agree with you. Surround yourself with your friends, people that you feel safe with. And there is a point in time where, you know, in the beginning, you tell your story constantly to anyone who will listen. And yes, I think that's important because that's part of your way of processing what happens. And then there comes to a point where, you've got to stop because yeah, you you're re-traumatizing yourself. <laughs> right. And, and you're overtaxing your friendships. Yourself. You know, at a certain point, you know, I hate to make everything sound transactional, but you know, you, you make deposits in the friendship bank and you make withdrawals from the friendship bank. And, you know, if all you can do with your friends is complain about your broken heart and you can't hear them or be there for them, you're, that's not a friendship that, you know, that that's a one-way transaction and you're going to bankrupt that friendship. Uh, and, and I think when you had a bad breakup, you're allowed like a month, two months of just making withdrawals. But then at a certain point you have to, and I think it helped to say to your friends past this date, slap me upside the head when I start in again, because you will start in again, Yeah. but you have to like give your friends permission to be, to cut you off at some point, to demand that you start making deposits and listening to them, being a friend to them again in the way they've been to you for the last couple of months. Right. And and I call it the, like, your friends aren't there to be your emotional vomit bucket, right? <laughs> and they're not actually not doing you a service when they just listen to you for hours on end complain about your ex. Because, like I mentioned, you're re-traumatizing yourself. Your body cannot tell the difference between what's happened in the past, the present, and the future. So if I was to recall right now my painful story of the breakup and the infidelity and this happened, and I was associated into the memory, I would start crying. My, I would start creating the cortisol. The stress hormones would be coming in my body, and that's why I would have this physical response, even though this breakup happened nine years ago. Mm-hmm. And so when you're retelling that story over and over again, and then your friends who think they're helping by by kind of diving into this hate fest route, like what a narcissist, what a sociopath, that actually doesn't help you. It might be like junk food and you feel better in that moment, but it doesn't help you actually move forward because you're continuously focusing your energy on the pain and on the injustice, and that is actually stopping you from moving forward. It doesn't help, I find, you know, unless you truly were with someone toxic and your friends were encouraging you for a very long time to get away from this person, and then you finally did, for the friends to reemphasize that you made the right choice, let's go through all the ways he was terrible or she was terrible. Um, but when friends jump in to say, oh, yeah, he was awful when he wasn't, that can make it harder to circle back and be friends or be supportive, even if you're not tight after the wounds mm-hmm. have healed. So beware of the friends yeah. who, you know, will just go off and off, you know, go off about what an asshole he was or what a bitch she was when they really weren't. 
recognize when a relationship right. ended because you outgrew it rather than the other person was terrible. But you reject – so we're on the same page on, on Friends. But you reject – not my advice. This is longstanding advice from many different people. The quickest way to get over someone is get under someone else. You reject that. Not okay. I think it depends. I think that if you are having sex with other people or now suddenly just going on the dating app as a way to not deal with your pain and your emotions, it's unhealthy because at the end of the day, you're going to be left with the same patterns. If from this relationship, if you don't start to recognize, hey, what went wrong? What's my part of this? What's how can I be accountable for how this relationship ended the way that it did? No, wait, I got I got to jump in there because that that posits that mm -hmm. the end is always something went wrong. Sometimes the end is what went right. Sometimes, again, it ends because you outgrew it and it should end, and it's time. And so right. to, to encourage people to always look at a relationship that ended and try to identify patterns that they don't want to repeat, I think sometimes that's not always applicable. I think people should look for patterns. We've certainly all had the friend who keeps dating the same wrong person in a different disguise and making the same mistake over and over again with a different person. But sometimes people are looking for clues in a relationship that ended when there's really no – there's no clue there. There's no nothing there. There's just you outgrew each other and it was time to call it. And we have to recognize that too. Right. Totally. And, and it's not a one size fits all. So when, if you had a relationship that ended and for whatever reason, maybe timing, maybe you grew out of each other, whatever that it was, yes, move on, move forward, however you want to do that. However, if you are in a relationship that broke up and this is the, these are the people that I work with every single day are relationships that fell apart because of something unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, then I think it's important to do an assessment and say, hey, is it really just because the act was so terrible or is there something about me that I can learn here? And, and if I'm feeling this wave of emotional intensity, is that the best time to start something new with someone else? And in that case, I don't think that getting under someone else or getting over someone else by, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, dating or, or doing whatever is the best choice. I think that there is a period of time and I think it's a wonderful opportunity where you have some time where I'm going to focus on me. And especially if you've been in a relationship where so much of your, your, your schedule or even your identity was immersed into the we or the other person, this is an amazing time for you to be like, okay, wait, like what hobbies have I lost here? What part of me did I lose here? How did I get to a point? Cause I hear this all the time. I feel like the rug has been ripped out from completely underneath me. I feel completely broken. Well, how did you get to a point where the very foundation that you were standing on was on the relationship or the validation of this person? So I think that the breakup can be a really great time to ask these questions. How do you know when you're ready to fuck somebody else? <laughs> What's I the sign? You are when you're not fucking someone else as a way to deal with what just happened. When you meet someone, whether it's online or you know at a bar after COVID, obviously, and and you're 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 genuinely interested, you're like, oh wow, like this, I'm I'm attracted again. Great, but if you're doing like, you know what? I just feel so shitty because I just saw on Instagram that my ex is doing this. I'm going to just go to this person. Don't do it. It's not fair to the other person either. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, a, a revenge fuck is never a good idea. No one emerges from a revenge fuck feeling particularly good about themselves or their past relationships or their you know potential future relationships. But you know, you said sometimes you gotta get back to your hobbies. Some people, you know, fucking around is the hobby that they got away from when they were in the relationship, and I think that they can. Uh, those people, if they're self-aware enough to know what they're doing is sports sex and hobby sex, they can get back to it maybe a little bit sooner than people uh, who fuck for other reasons or fuck for more important, some people yes. would say. they get a hall pass. <laughs> All right. I, I have a question for you uh, from a caller that I wanted to bounce off you who's got a very particular okay. kind of uh, breakup slash grief situation. Uh, would you be willing to, to feel the call? Yeah, for sure. Hey, Dan. I'm calling to ask your advice on something that happened recently. My wife and I are in a healthy, ethically non-monogamous partnership, and we've been practicing it rather successfully for a few years now. At the beginning of quarantine, we both started seeing separate partners online at around the same time. Neither of them live near us, so we've maintained the relationships via video chats, text calls, etc. The woman I was in a relationship with is someone who I've been friends with for years, She was single and had never been a part of a non-monogamous relationship before. With the increased amount of time sitting at home, she and I discovered that we were romantically interested in each other and began pursuing a relationship. One thing I should mention is that my wife and I are not open about our non-monogamy. Only a small number of people know, and even those that do are not aware of who or when we are engaging in secondary relationships. My secondary partner absolutely respected this and did not break our trust In addition, she had not told anyone about our relationship as she and I work for the same employer. We did not want people at work to know about our relationship because it is a small company and we prefer to keep that business private. The only people that knew about the relationship are my wife and my therapist. So, the reason I'm calling is because a few weeks ago, she took her own life. It has been a very difficult time for me and my wife because I'm struggling to find positive outlets for my grief and sadness. I'm unable to tell my family or friends about the nature of our relationship, how much I really knew her, or how much I cared about her. No one will ever know that I was probably the last person she had a romantic relationship with, and that makes me extraordinarily sad. And worst of all, we had plans to see each other in person in the very near future. I'm sorely heartbroken that I did not get to hold her before she passed. I know that in situations where someone loses a partner this way, they often blame themselves and try to figure out what they could have done differently. And to be honest, I don't blame myself. I know that I was a positive light in her life. She told me so. It was not anyone's fault. She was working on her mental health through multiple avenues because she knew she needed help. But unfortunately, it wasn't enough. I've spoken to my therapist, my wife, and now you about the internalized grieving that I'm experiencing but I'm still struggling not being able to honor her life in a more public way or to express to close friends what we had. I miss her every day and have taken steps to honor her life in meaningful ways privately. I imagine I'm not the first person nor the last to experience this type of tragedy, although I hope no one ever has to. Do you or your listeners have any suggestions for me on how I can work through this? My suggestion for for this person, because it seems like he wants to honor this person and he can expose the nature of the relationship. But I think that he could still honor her and their friendship because they were also friends before. And so the details of how intimate their relationship was, I don't 
believe is anybody's business. But this person from who they were, their character, their values, like how they were as a person in the world, how they made an impact on, on him. Like, I think that still can be honored and it's beautiful. And um, that's, that's what I would say. And he shouldn't worry about other people finding, you know, worry that other people will be suspicious about the depth of his grief in the passing of what most people will assume was a close friend. Mm-hmm. And and he can the color can fly under the radar of that assumption. You know, this is one of those cases where you know the monogamous assumption will benefit the caller. You know, most people look at a couple and assume they're monogamous unless they're publicly non-monogamous, and that you were close to this mm-hmm. woman and she took her own life, and you are heartbroken by it. I think the caller is worried that you know if he's too grief-stricken in public, people will connect dots that people are disinclined to connect. They're not going to connect those dots, very unlikely to connect those dots. They will just think you've been particularly struck by the death of your colleague and your very close friend. And you won't be, there won't be suspicion that attaches to the relationship uh, in this way necessarily. I I feel like there's two layers to this. There's one, which is him dealing with the heartbreak and finding a, a, a way to grieve that. And then the other is honoring her. And so, like, in dealing with the heartbreak, another possible thing that he could do is also join an anonymous support group. And that way he can actually talk about it and and let it out. And it's it's anonymous. I I would choose a group that clearly wouldn't connect back to the situation. Um, So that might be helpful. And then the second part is how do you honor? And I think honoring the person, however they're going to do it, whether it's a video montage or or putting something together because of this person was an amazing human being, I don't think that people are going to be like, wow, like, why are you honoring this person? Like, that, that just doesn't seem to be something I, I think would happen. He might be more self-conscious of that because he's in that situation. Um, so he's not using the public to grieve his heartbreak. He's using the public to honor this person. Amy Chan, founder of Renew Breakup Bootcamp. Thank you for coming uh, onto the show. Her new book, Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart, from HarperCollins, will be published in December. Thank you so much, Amy. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much, Dan. Hey, Dan, longtime listener here. Just calling in because I recently thought of a question that has to do with actually a previous question aired on an episode. And it was an episode where someone had called in saying their boyfriend would not shave their Hitler mustache. No matter how good he thought it looked, Hitler has that coined now, so don't fucking wear a Hitler stash. And I'm thinking in the current political climate, I'm thinking the same thing about our fucking American flag. <laughs> like, how many people right now look at American flags and have to do a double take if someone has it on their lawn? or wearing a t-shirt, and part of me thinks, oh, oh, are they a Trump supporter? And no matter, you know, if you are not a Trump supporter and say you want to proudly fly the American flag, part of me is like, do we as Americans have anything to be proud of right now, especially having Trump as our current president? But yeah, like, I see someone wearing a hat or something, and I'm like, ew, like, I wonder if they are a Trump supporter. So is our American flag now stained? Is it the new Hitler stash? I wasn't able to be out in the streets after Joe Biden won the election, after it was called for him that glorious Saturday morning when the news came through. But I watched 
a lot of clips of people celebrating in New York and in Washington, D.C. and in the streets of Seattle. And one of the things that I noticed in clip after clip after clip was people were waving American flags. People were celebrating. The same thing happened when Barack Obama won the election in 2008. There were huge and jubilant crowds in the streets singing the national anthem, the problematic and very deeply racist and ought to be replaced with America of the Beautiful national anthem and waving American flags. And in both cases, it really drove home the point that the flag does not belong to the right. The flag does not belong to them. And in a way, that makes all those horrifying Trump flags and horrifying MAGA hats kind of good because in a sense, they sucked up a lot of poison that if Trumpists had just been out there waving only the flag or wearing only the American flag would have seeped into the American flag in a much more permanent way. Yeah, Trump and Trumpers and everything horrible that's been going on in this country the last four years have really stained the American flag. But most of the stains have been contained. Most of the toxicity, most of the poison, most of the Hitler mustache effect, most of the swastika effect really has been reserved for those horrifying Trump flags and those horrifying red MAGA hats. They've drawn off a lot of poison that otherwise would have infected the American flag. So no, I don't think that the American flag belongs to the right or to the Trumpists. I don't think it has been permanently tarnished or diminished by Trump in a way because Trump and his asshole followers created a different, parallel, separate visual language. And you know, when you see a Trumpist displaying a Confederate battle flag, a Trump flag, wearing their MAGA hat and an American flag, in a way they're saying they know the American flag doesn't stand for what they stand for unless that American flag is amended with their fucking Trump flag and with their fucking Confederate flag. So yeah, I never thought on this show or anywhere else I would express any gratitude for anything that the Trump assholes have done. But I guess I am grateful that they created their own political iconography. They created that horrible Trump flag, all those horrible Trump flags. They created that horrible or he created that horrible MAGA hat because it means the American flag still stands for something else, something besides Trump. And so, yeah, I don't think it has to be consigned to the dustbin of history along with the Hitler mustache and anybody's boyfriend who wears one now. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some tweets. At Had Day R tweets, because it's 2020, instead of shrugging and assuming a technical glitch for the lack of a Savage Lovecast this morning, I lost my shit and assumed everyone associated with the Lovecast was dead. We are not dead. Glitches sometimes happen, but this week's Lovecast is here to prove, again, that we are not dead. At line, Lamont DK tweets, Hey, at Fake Dan Savage, please, please, please consider doing a Savage Lovecast live stream at a time of day when your devoted European listeners can join you. Our next Savage Love live stream is streaming worldwide on Saturday, December 12th, but we will schedule the next Savage Love live stream for noon on a Saturday, so make it a matinee in America and a late evening show in Europe. And finally, at Heather Grofe tweets, Bought myself an early Christmas present today, a subscription to the Savage Lovecast Magnum. Can't wait to delve into the archives. Thanks at Fake Dan Savage for making long hours in the COVID lab more entertaining. Thank you, Heather, for the work you're doing 
in the COVID lab. And last week when I was doing the tweets, I mentioned Stacey Abrams' organization, which helped to get out the vote in Georgia, helped to win Georgia for Joe Biden. I said they were at fairfight.org. They're actually at fairfight.com. And a quick correction, last week when I was reading the tweets, I mentioned Stacey Abrams' organization in Georgia that helped flip Georgia, turn it blue, encourage people to make a donation. It's fairfight.com, not fairfight.org. I said fairfight.org. It's fairfight.com. Go to fairfight.com now. Join me in making a donation to Stacey Abrams' terrific organization in Georgia and help deliver two Senate seats to the Democrats on January 5th. All right, now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about your response in episode 735 to the caller who was giving directions to some guy and he exposed himself to her. What you said that you would do in that situation is ideal. However, in real life, that would take practice, especially for women. Taking self-defense classes or even acting out some scenarios on your own can help prepare you for the next time you're in fight or flight or freeze mode. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in response to the uh, caller in episode 735 about premature ejaculation. Normally agree with with everything you say. I got to say, though, here, uh, premature ejaculation is something that I suffered with for a long time. And um, what, what I did and what I was just called it is, is get to therapy. Go talk to a really great sex-positive therapist. For me, it was a lot of entrenched personal issues that I dealt with for a long time. And, and through that, I was able to overcome the physical side of premature ejaculation, uh, still struggling with some of the, the emotional side and things that came along with it. But all is not lost. This is for the caller that can't figure out why she keeps breaking up with people. I'm exactly like you. I'm 40, and I just realized during quarantine that the reason I don't want to be with somebody is because I don't want to get married. It looks terrible. It looks like torture. I date just the nicest guys. They're so wonderful and they're so nice. And I just, the minute I feel like maybe it's heading in that direction, I break up with them because I took 40 years to figure it out. I don't want to get married and I'm so happy that I learned it, even in quarantine. I'm very happy. I'm here not with a husband. (laughs) So yeah, turns out nothing's wrong with me. I just never wanted to get married. Thank God. All right, we're going to leave it there. Got a question you want answered or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064. That's 206-302-2064. Or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment. And then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Get your tickets now for the next Savage Love live stream where I'll be answering as many of your questions as I can live from my living room on Saturday, December 12th. Send your question ahead of time to livestream at savagelovecast.com and then go to savagelovecast.com slash events to get your tickets. Speaking of tickets, you have a few more chances to see Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 2. Head to humpfilmfest.com for this great compilation of our favorite smut from the last 15 years of the Hump Film Festival. And you now have until January 8th to get us your homemade dirty movies for the 16th annual Hump Film Fest in 2021. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to learn more about making and submitting a film and becoming a part of Hump. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Check out Amy Chan's work at RenewBreakupBootCamp.com. And I'd like to thank Bobby Lewis of Media Matters for the Fox News clip we played at the top of the show. Follow Bobby on Twitter at RevRLewis. 
Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.